Femoral is a production of iHeart 3D Audio. For full exposure, listen with headphones. So I believe that you told me that this was your favorite record, right? I believe, and I've said many times, and I stiffen my back whenever I do, that the OK Laughing record is the greatest record ever made. Period. <laughs> that's, that's my own personal feeling about it. This is Ian Nagoski, a guy who's heard a lot of records. Ian's label, Canary Records, puts out all kinds of ephemeral material, most of which he has personally researched. In season one, our episode, Diaspora, covered his work preserving the music and stories of Ottoman Empire refugees working in the early recording industry of the United States. In 2015, Canary re-released the subject of today's program, the OK Laughing Record. If you were going to explain to somebody very quickly what the OK Laughing Record is, it's a side of a record where people laugh for three minutes. (laughs) And that's it, basically. I've listened to it hundreds and hundreds of times. There isn't that shock of the novel that happens the first time you listen to it, for me anymore. But you play it for other people, and some people will immediately get it and laugh along and just love it with all their hearts. Other people, and it's not at all uncommon, will get freaked out and go, yeah, no, I don't like that at all. (laughs) Like, please don't make me listen to that again. That was uncomfortable for me. We will play the OK Laughing record, and you can make up your own mind about it. But first, some thoughts on the nature of laughter. Something about it being disembodied, I think. Not having people to look at when you're hearing them laugh can be disconcerting. We have this idea of maniacal laughter, a laugh that comes from somewhere that isn't spontaneous. The villain's evil laugh in the movie, everybody recognizes that sound as being menacing and scary. The sense of like, I don't know why you're laughing now. I'm not laughing, this isn't funny. There is also such a thing as laughing yoga. People will get up at dawn and go outside and look into the sky and just laugh for, you know, 10 or 15 or 20 minutes or something. That creeps me out. <laughs> because it, it seems really inauthentic. You know, they're, yeah. they're making themselves laugh and you kind of go, that doesn't sound like a real laugh to me. What is that? This tie between uncanniness and disembodied sound has a basis in biology. People have been programmed for thousands and thousands of years that if there's a sound, that sound has got to be coming from something. That's what our ears and our brains are wired to understand. The point of listening is to know that if there's a bear coming up behind you, That sound means bear, and you should run. (laughs) I must be going now. It's not coincidental that the other purpose of the ears is to keep your balance. My voice should be in your right ear at this moment. If not, turn your headphones around so that you are hearing my voice in your right ear. Your ears are there to locate you you spatially and know what's going on in the atmosphere. 
So it was a brand new thing at the end of the 19th century for people to experience disembodied sound. Early sound recording was a little disconcerting to people, but it was also magical. It was like, can you believe that there's the sound of a person singing in your house when clearly there is no one there? Blew people's minds. And the world was still kind of in that state when this record came out. The way Ian tells it, the OK Laughing record, this little 78 put out in 1922, is the stuff of legend. Crazy thing is, it was a huge, huge runaway monster hit. And it stayed in print off and on, but more or less continuously for like 30 years. It was a really ubiquitous record. Everybody had one. Let me show you. The way that I first encountered it is just digging around in boxes of 78s. You just run into it over and over again. I wound up buying like five or six copies over the course of a couple of years. The question becomes not just what is it and how did it become such a big hit, but why do we know so little about it? At this juncture, it's worth asking a question that seems deceptively simple. What is the function of laughter? What's new, Portland? I thought you might need some new jokes for your program. Well, don't tell me that you have contrived some specimens of waggery. How far back do you want to go? <laughs> because laughing is so human. Did you hear about the soldier who ate five dozen oysters and got discharged from the army? Ate five dozen oysters and got discharged from the army? Yes, he had 60 blue points. There aren't any human beings on Earth that don't laugh. Oh, fine. It wouldn't work with, with uh, clams, would it? But, uh, <laughs> Although, according to legend, there are a few characters of note that were so-called agilasts, individuals who never, or almost never, laugh. Scientists have a name for this thing. They call it inertia. It's been claimed that Sir Isaac Newton laughed only once in his life on the subject of geometry. Sir Isaac Newton figured all that out a long time ago. So that leaves us free to see for ourselves what it all means. It's a natural human animal sound. It's just something that evolutionarily we do. And there's this idea that laughing is contagious. There are even stories of laughter inciting mass hysteria, like the Tanganyika laughter epidemic in which uncontrollable laughter spread through the student body at a Tanzania boarding school, then into the neighboring villages, infecting an estimated 1,000 people. Purportedly, some laughed as long as 16 days. Our brains are wired so that when we hear somebody laughing, we tend to laugh along. There are many examples of songs going way back that include bits of laughing in them. Laughing song. The end of one of William Blake's Songs of Innocence, the end of the 18th century, includes a bit where it goes ha-ha-he at the end. Come live and be merry and join with me to sing the sweet chorus of ha-ha-he. That was an awful thing to say. Strauss's Deflator Mouse in the end of the 19th century has a laughing song in it. So excuse me, oh, 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 my 
There's an American prairie composer's song from a book in uh, 1879 that has a laughing song with a ha-ha-ha refrain in it, sung in four parts. Fast forward to the turn of the 20th century, around the advent of recorded sound. When the record business starts, what happens very quickly is that there's a VHS Betamax format war. The first recording format that's marketed to people is the wax cylinder that Edison is putting out, and the machines are really nice, and they're expensive. Within about five, ten years, a German immigrant named Emil Berliner in Washington, D.C., comes out with a different technology that records sound on discs. Berliner's invention was called the gramophone. They're cheaper, and anybody can afford one relative to the cylinder machines. What happens is the same thing that happens in the VHS Betamax war. The cheaper one wins out. Part of the reason for that is that there's a broader catalog of material for the cheaper device. Edison had uh, social requirements for the music that he was releasing. He was functionally deaf and literally had kind of no ear for music. He wasn't the music guy. But the Berliner format starts releasing tons of stuff that people just like. Normal, around-the-house kind of music. And he takes a bunch of chances on interesting, odd, other kinds of performances. Very early on, the end of the 19th century, he puts out a disc of people imitating barnyard sounds. You know, there's no bird in the room, and yet you hear the sound of a bird. And it's novel and exciting. And it kind of puts you in a different space, auditorily. (laughs) One of the first big hit records in the history of records is a laughing song. It also happens to be the first record ever made by an African-American person. A guy named George W. Johnson, who was actually born enslaved in 1846. First records in 1898, called The Laughing Song. The Laughing Song by George W. Johnson. The deal was with the technology at the time, you would go in and cut the disc, and the material that is used to stamp multiple copies of it would wear out pretty quick. So if you had a big hit record, after you'd pressed a few hundred copies, the stamper would wear out, and you'd have to have the artist come back in and re-record the piece over again. So George W. Johnson winds up going in and recording the laughing song a dozen times or more over a decade. And it's such a big hit that, surprise, surprise, the great laughing song. some white guy comes along, takes the song, re-records it, and that becomes an even bigger hit. Bert Shepard records a laughing song for the gramophone company, Berliner's company. And that record sells, like, millions of copies all over the world. It was clear right away in the recording business, laughing songs are working from a marketing standpoint. And when I heard it, 
In the first two decades of the 20th century, the laughing song motif was translated into the most popular musical forms of the day. In the United States, there are a gazillion instances of recordings that either include laughing or imitate laughing. For instance, there's an English music hall song that's a ripoff of the George W. Johnson laughing record with new lyrics written into it called The Laughing Policeman. I know a fat old policeman, he's always on our street. And that's a huge runaway hit on its own, too. There's a skit in 1910 called The Laughing Spectator. Hey, Mac, where's your partner? Why, he's not here, but say, Professor, after I get through, you'll never miss him. Listen. Hello, Mac. How are you, Rayleigh? What's the matter, Mac? You look upset. I am upset. Me bank busted and I lost me balance. <laughs> There's a record called Laughs You Have Known. It's also like a vaudeville-type skit. First of all, there's the laugh. L-A-U-G-H, laugh. Now, this laugh needs no introduction at all. At all. Hi! <laughs> the Plantation Jazz Orchestra and Henry Raderman both record a song called Make That Trombone Laugh. Between 1919 1928, the Louisiana Five, Powell's Jazz Monarchs, and Houndhead Henry all record songs called Laughing Blues. Guitarist named Sam Moore records a Laughing Rag in 1921. Boy Smack covers it in 1928. And then in the sheet music ragtime era, you've got Laughing Hyena. Jelly Roll Morton records the Hyena Stomp. Jelly, that's terrible. <laughs> got Laughing Lucas, the Horse Laugh, the Hilarity Rag. You get the idea. It was a genre, and it was popular. It was part of the mood of the time in America in the 1920s. It's in that context that the OK Laughing record is released in the United States in 1922. About August 1922, it comes out. It was recorded for a record company in Berlin, Germany, called Becca Records, early, mid-1920. When the record starts, there is a horn player. There's a cornet playing a song. Turns out the song is called Aus der Jugendzeit in my younger days. It's like a middle of the 19th century, kind of sweet, nostalgic, eh, kind of schlocky song. And then, woman starts laughing. And then another guy starts laughing. 
And then the cornet player is trying to get through this performance, but can't keep his lips on the horn, and he starts laughing too. While he's playing, that makes them laugh more. And then the whole thing is this breakdown of hilarity, of laughter, where all of them are laughing and the trumpet player is trying to make it through the performance, and it's really, it just falls apart. So, to summarize, a performer is interrupted by rising laughter until he can't go on. That's the original. And in order to understand the OK Laughing record, number one is that when it became a huge hit in the U.S., there were a bunch of knockoffs. There were a bunch of imitations. All of those knockoffs included one significant change. In every American version of that basic structure, the trumpet player makes a mistake. He starts playing and then breaks a note, and that causes the woman to begin laughing. That doesn't happen on the OK Laughing record. There is no thing that she begins laughing at, and it has driven people crazy for a long time. Why does she start laughing? Well, you got to look at Germany in 1920. Between 1914 and 1918, two million Germans were killed in World War I. Five million more were wounded. Seven million people were casualties of World War I. Fully 10% of the total population. And then, end of 1918 through all of 1919, there's a revolution. They overthrow the monarch and found the new republic. Six continuous years of war and upheaval and terrible suffering. The entire country was grieving. When that cornet player begins playing Aus der Jugendzeit, this schlocky, sentimental, old warhorse song that everybody probably knew, this bit of nostalgia for a world lost and more innocent time in my younger days, it's in the context of a world that had gone completely bonkers. And that's why she starts laughing. Because if somebody's playing this trite, nostalgic, glib bit of nonsense in the context of actual pain and suffering, it's crazy to play that stupid song. The conceit might seem absurd. Perhaps that's the point. Right then, that particular moment in Germany, end of the teens, beginning of the 20s, is when Dada happens. Raoul Hausman had... In 1918, just come up with the first sound poem, <sighs> FMSWB, <laughs> which is just a collection of sounds performed as poetry. Uh, 
<laughs> Immediately after that, Kurt Vitters does the Ursanat. He spends 10 years on it, but he starts in 1922. And that's, again, sound poem, just a collection of sounds. Glim, 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 bim, bim, glim, 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 bim, bim. Like that. The thing with Dada was that it was anti-aesthetic. Not pretty, and it was a direct reaction to the craziness of World War I, to the fact that everything was meaningless. Valeska Gert was also a really brilliant performer around that time, dancer, actress, performance artist. Does this piece, Pause, where, you know, she gets up on stage and just stands there, and that's the dance. Also, in the 20s around that time, she comes up with a piece called Baby, where she says that she used her body to record the sounds of babies and then gets up and sounds exactly like a baby. That's what's going on in Berlin, end of the teens, beginning of the 20s. People are reacting to all of this just madness and the breakdown of humanity and civilization in the world. After six years of machine guns and tanks and trench warfare and chemical weapons... Meanwhile, that August 1922, this newish record company called OK Records, run by a German immigrant, releases this German recording without any credit. Doesn't say who's on it. Doesn't say who actually performs it. A lot of people have looked. A lot of people have tried to figure it out. And it's really still not clear. The Library of Congress's National Registry inducted the OK Laughing Record as a significant recording that will be preserved indefinitely by the American federal government. There was an accompanying essay that was written by a guy named Kerry O'Dell when it was inducted in 2003, and in that, he gives this one account of who might have been the performers on it. He thinks that the woman who's laughing is an opera singer named Luci Bernardo, and that the other guy who's laughing is Otto Rathke. I'm not really sure where he got that. <laughs> it's just, you know, it's just a story that circulates. Felix Silbers is apparently the cornet player. There's also the possibility that the performers are two significant comedians of Germany in the 19-teens, 20s, 30s. Carl Valentine is an extraordinary person, and it's possible that he was involved. It's sort of in his style and of his time. Carl Valentine was a guy that had been born in 1882 in Munich. He was a skeletally thin, long, absurdist performer who for 40 years was performing in cabarets and theaters and circuses and stuff along with his regular performing partner, he gave the name Liesel Karlstadt. Extraordinary people, really absurdist, dark stuff that they were doing. They were actually banned by the Nazis in the 1930s for their comedy having a quality of being defeatist. So it, it kind of makes sense that it, it might have been them, but we really just don't know.
two years after Becca released the Laughing Record in Germany. It was reissued for an American audience. The record comes out in the U.S. on this little independent record label, little upstart label in New York City called OK. And they just call it the OK Laughing Record with no credits. Summer, August 1922, thereabouts. Strange thing is, it takes off. There's a bunch of evidence that the record just sold like hotcakes, particularly through that Christmas. It was like a big 1922 Christmas gift. OK ran lots of ads for it in newspapers and stuff, and individual stores, furniture stores mostly, also ran ads encouraging people to buy it. End of 22, beginning of 23. I'll read you some of the ad copy from some of these. A riot of fun. Laughs, gurgles, chuckles at every turn of the disc. A riot of laughter. Five turns of the disc and the most doleful undertaker grins like a young bride. The bill collector scowls. Turn on the OK Laughing record. He'll try to lend you money. Already it's saying that it's going to like cure heartache and cure financial trouble. Cure with a laugh. We just received our second order of OK Laughing Records. Good for grouchiness, blues, headaches, cramps, or gout. 75 cents each. That's one of the other things about the OK Laughing Record. Records were a dollar, across the board, generally speaking. OK Laughing Record was 75 cents. It's a bargain. All right, here's my favorite one. Are you sad? Are you blue? Are you downhearted? Are you despondent? Are you in trouble? Are you melancholy? Are you peeved? Are you gloomy? Are you married? Hear the OK Laughing Record and you will recover. It plays on any phonograph. Are you married? (laughs) (laughs) That was not official OK Records copy, by the way. That was just a little local ad put in a newspaper by a furniture store. (laughs) What if the steak is cold? What if the coffee just isn't? Turn on the OK Laughing Record. It's a better cure than Munyan ever had. I had to look up Munyan, and it turns out Munyan's is a brand of patent medicine that was mostly alcohol during Prohibition. So basically, that's the equivalent of somebody putting out a record now and saying, listen to this record. It's better than medical marijuana. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, it will actually cure you. It's a better cure. Though OK's release was a big success in late 1922, the succeeding years would cement the record's legacy. What happens when you have a runaway hit record or a hit movie or something? Number one, sequels. The once proud civilization now had to place its trust and hope in Godzilla and his powerful ally, Robot Man. We've got this formula we think works, people want it, we need to put out another one. Titan against Titan. Giant against giant in the most spectacular battle yet. November 4th, 1922, there's a record by the Riga Orchestra recorded for OK, and they released that as the OK Laughing Dance record. 
right away. And then by January 1923, they come up with a catalog number for the OK Laughing Record number two. And then, after sales start dwindling, April 1924, they put out the OK Crying Record. Now, like most sequels, each one was less of a hit than the previous one. But the OK Crying Record, I mean, that's insane. It is what it says it is. It's three minutes of people crying. It was not a hit. I spent 10 years trying to get my hands on one. It was number one on my wish list for a decade. <laughs> Finally got one on eBay. Paid through the nose, man. 30 bucks I paid for the OK Crying record. Because, I mean, it's crazy. Can you imagine going over someone's house and they're sitting there listening to three minutes of people crying? I mean... Did the people at the record company not get that the reason the OK Laughing record worked was because it made you feel good? What were they thinking? And then, what's even crazier than that is exactly the same time OK comes out with a crying record, another knockoff company puts out their own crying record. There are two crying records that come out in the United States in 1924. Nobody wanted them. And on the flip side of the knockoff crying record, there's a performance called Contagious Coughs. So they get that there's a structure you can do where you've got a musical performance and somebody starts doing something and it's infectious and then people will buy that record that does that, right? So they try to achieve that success with coughing. I would describe coughing as emotionally neutral or kind of annoying. It's not a fun record. <laughs> and it's not a good idea. But that's how you know. They had caught lightning in a bottle and they're trying to put out something else that people might want. And they're casting around in the dark and just guessing about it. In a sea of laughing records, OK remains the gold standard. At least six other American versions of the OK Laughing Record come out made by different performers. They all follow the same structure. There's a musical performance, almost always a horn at the beginning. Then they insert the broken note to cause her to start laughing. And then a man and woman laugh for the rest of the side. I have listened to them all. And I can tell you, none of them are as good as the OK Laughing Record. The OK Laughing Record, there's something about the way those two laugh that feels authentic. It feels good. And all of the other laughing records that follow that structure that come out, yeah, I don't buy it. I just don't really think those people are laughing. I think they're doing a ha, 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 you know, that. And it's not laughing. And you can tell the difference. It's one of the things about records. You can hear it in somebody's voice when they're authentic. A really good singer, you believe them. It turns out it's the same thing with laughing records.
Anyway, so the OK Laughing record sells tons of copies, stays in print through all the 1920s into the 1930s. And then by the time you get to the 30s and, well, the depths of the Depression, it's kind of old hat. You know, people aren't really wanting laughing records anymore by the middle of the 1930s. And it kind of just fades away, you know, just sits around in people's houses. But then, during, after World War II, generation of comedians comes up who had been little kids in the 1920s. And they remember the OK Laughing record and how great it was. And so there are two examples I can think of off the top of my head where you've got brilliant, brilliant comedians, 1940s, who were doing this like blown out, over the top, surreal, crazed humor. And they do cover versions. They do new imaginings of the OK Laughing record. The first example is Spike Jones and his City Slickers, who were, you know, enormously popular, doing this um, com- combination of, like, corn pone humor with this over-the-top, crazy, surrealist, frenetic energy. So they do the Jones Laughing record. It follows basically the same structure as the OK Laughing record. You get a horn solo at the beginning, And then it breaks down and people start laughing like crazy and keep laughing through the rest of the side. But being Spike Jones, it's not a sweet, sad, sentimental song. It's the flight of the bumblebee. It's really, really great. grew up then. He remembered the OK Laughing record and how well it worked. (laughs) Same generation, 1940s. You got another guy who's a huge comedy star and had a great career going, who was a cartoon director, Tex Avery. Avery is most associated with the golden age of Merry Melody and Looney Tunes cartoons, and famous for, alongside voice actor Mel Blanc, creating the characters of Bugs Bunny, Daffy Duck, Elmer Fudd, and Porky the Pig. That's all, folks. Tex Avery makes a cartoon called Shh. He invents a plot for this cartoon, which is uh, about a guy who's got like a, a nervous condition. Mr. Tweedle, you are a very sick man. You have a serious case of thrombonosis. He goes to a hotel where he can just sit and be quiet for a while. And then in the next room, there's a trumpet player, a man and a woman, in these gales of hilarity. And he actually uses the OK Laughing record in its entirety as the soundtrack to the second half of the cartoon. It's just the OK Laughing record. Plays it all the way through. But, but, again, you can hear he re-recorded the first three seconds or so, so that the cornet player playing Alster Jürgenzeit misses a note and gives her a reason to laugh. It's a new recording. 
you can hear actually the, the surface noise of the old 78 fade in. There's a crossfade where he brings in the original recording. But he had to give some reason <laughs> for her to laugh. Because Americans never got it. They never understood the actual uh, meaning of that first laugh. <laughs> the result, though, is that this new generation in the 1940s and 50s of kind of, you know, surrealist, over-the-top American humorists, Mad Magazine folks and whatever, remember the OK Laughing record, and it gets reissued and comes out as a 45 winds up staying in print for, you know, a bunch more years, sells a bunch more copies to a totally new generation. So it's a, it's a, it's a funny thing. It's, it's a, a genre, but it's also one of a kind. Considering how effective it was, and for some people still is, it is kind of extraordinary that there aren't more examples of it in circulation now. I mean, you really don't have laughing records anymore just kind of went away. Partially the whole business of sound being disembodied is not as novel anymore. Yeah, there's some kind of loss of innocence. I don't quite understand, but, but it's a jewel. It's a jewel. When do you put on the laughing record? When are you like, oh, this is what I'm going to go home and listen to? Oh, geez. Always in groups. I, I never put it on by myself. It's always when I want to share something with someone and we can kind of look each other in the eye. And, you know, that's when I really laugh out loud is, you know, being with somebody and having them get it and getting it with them and sharing that experience. Yeah. Yeah, it's always with somebody. I've played it a lot at shows. I go around sometimes and give... You know, talks, and for years it was my my closing piece. Kind of mm. tell some of the story and then play it for the audience. And I've I've watched audiences many times. Um, some sit dead silent and just <laughs> wait it out. <laughs> they re really just look at me like, "Why are you doing this?" <laughs> and then other times you have people who just feel better and are ready to just go along with it, who have a I don't know, just an easier laugh. You know, that's it's easier to trigger for them or a more absurd sense of, you know, how crazy it is. It it, it depends. Ha, 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 ha.
Ephemeral is written and assembled by Alex. and produced by Matt Frederick, Trevor Young, and Max Williams. Special thanks this episode to John DeVecca. Today's conversation was based on the compilation A Better Cure, A Brief History of the OK Laughing Record and Its Progeny. Explore the collection and everything else Ian Nagoski is up to at canary-records.bandcamp.com and check in with us too over at ephemeral.show. Next time on Ephemeral. We arrived at Harvard to go through Peter's archives. To Harvard's credit, they had at least put everything in boxes. Once opening those containers, though, there was just no organization whatsoever. It was like Peter's brain overflowing. There was sheet music, magazine clippings, tapes, VHS cassettes, doodles, notebooks, just a really random assortment of ephemera. The first couple days was more of a psychological gestation phase. What am I walking into? What am I contending with here? And take your chances with me. Support Ephemeral by recommending an episode, leaving a review, or dropping us a line at Ephemeral Show. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. And learn more at ephemeral.show.